0: Hello, this is Bob Groves. Welcome again to the Provost podcast series entitled Faculty and Research. This week, I'm overjoyed to welcome Professor Duncan Roo, a Raymond Wagner Professor in Literary Studies here at Georgetown. He teaches English literature with a focus on the Romanticism era, British poetry, 20th century poets at, at Georgetown. He is the author of many books, mainly in the area of romantic studies and contemporary British drama. He's also written for British newspapers. He's the president of the Charles Lamb Society, vice chairman of the Keats Shelley Memorial Association, a founding member and former chairman of the Hazlitt Society and fellow of the Royal Society of Arts. I am delighted to welcome you here. I'm overjoyed that we persuaded you to be part of this so welcome.
1: It's an honor thank you.
0: You know maybe we should start with just having you speak to how you ended up at Georgetown University in Washington DC.
1: Bob I was in my mid-40s and a professor at Oxford University at St. Catherine's College and very happy there I might say but uh, one day I received a phone call from Georgetown and I was offered a flight over so I came over and talked to people and then went back again Uh, and I continued my life there but I then started receiving phone calls from Georgetown and as I spoke to the voices on the other end it seemed to me that the kind of challenge that Georgetown would offer me a completely different educational system, a quite different constituency of students, was something that in a funny way excited me, really sort of stimulated me from a professional point of view. And I eventually found myself saying yes to everything. And I came over here in 08, not realizing that it was the first step in quite a big transition that continues to this day. I became a citizen in 2013. My research and my teaching changed accordingly. I came over as very much somebody who worked in the 18th and 19th centuries and I find myself today Although I still have a foot in that area and a lot of my research is in that area, I find that most of what I'm teaching today is to do with American literature and British literature of the 20th and 21st centuries, particularly as American and British writers communicate with each other and influence each other. I mean my specialism tends to be poetry, so a lot of my teaching work has been on American 20th and 21st century poets, some of whom have literally come into the classroom to talk about their work. And two British poets too have also done that. So, and that's something I didn't expect to happen, but that I now see from the vantage point of 2019 as, as part of a slow-burning transformation that began in
0: 2008. So this was a gigantic move for you, then. I can see the excitement, but there must have been some trepidation attached to this, too. Was that part of the excitement, that it was a, a step into the unknown? You could say that when people do things like that, it's
1: often done with a degree of ignorance and a certain amount, a small amount of stupidity (laughs) and I had just enough of both those things to treat it like diving into the deep end of a swimming pool. Just simply not thinking about the consequences but committing myself absolutely to whatever happened. And I actually think that that's really important, that if you don't commit yourself to what you find on the other side, you won't, as it were, Mm. gain the full benefit of the experience. But I do feel that all the things that seem to me to be slightly daunting, the difference in students, the difference in the education system, have in the end turned out to be great virtues, they've really stimulated me, they've provoked me into doing things I would never otherwise have done. Mm -hmm.
0: So say say a little more about the differences among students. I, I suspect others are interested in that. What do you think of when you say that?
1: Well, people often say to me, what's the difference between your Oxford students and the ones here? And I think they expect to hear me criticise the ones here. It's certainly true that the people I taught at Oxford were incredibly gifted, all of them. They were just incredibly gifted people. But the thing about incredibly gifted people is that they're often gifted also with the ability to teach themselves. And to a great extent, most of them had that. So that one way of looking at it is to say almost anyone could have taught them anyone with a degree of ability in the particular area i feel here i get a fascinating mixture of people abilities yes but much more importantly backgrounds and there's one other thing that they have students in england tend not to have because they're american young people at this university are gifted with this incredible can-do attitude, this optimism, which is an overriding factor in their ability to get out there and excel themselves. And if you provoke them, and if you encourage them in the right way, they can do things that are really quite amazing, that really do amaze you. And doing that kind of teaching has been incredibly rewarding for me. I, I mean, I have to say, in every conceivable way, I'm a happier,
0: more fulfilled teacher here than I ever have been before. You mentioned the 2013 event of your citizenship. Why is that meaningful to you? And in what way has it interacted with your scholarship? I think that
1: one of the things we tend to take for granted if we're born in a country is our citizenship. and because of that you hardly ever think of it. But when you go to another country, and especially a country like this one, and you study for it, and you go through an examination, and then you go through a ceremony in order to attain it, you're given the opportunity to really analyze what it is you're doing and to ask yourself whether it's something you really want. And I decided early on that it was actually the logical conclusion to having come here in 2008. But more to the point, I could see that if I really believed I was making an investment in the young people at this university, it made sense for me to be of the same nationality. It made sense for me to have an investment in the country itself. And that, in that sense, it's been enormously enriching. I mean, it's really hard to be specific about it, but it changes you fundamentally as a person in terms of what you conceive your identity to be. But having done that, it changed my teaching first because it made me fascinated by American literature. And it made me, because my background was in English literature, which is distinct from American literature, I started making inroads into 20th and 21st century literature and I learnt an awful lot in a very short time and immediately set up courses for myself about the poetry of this country that forced me to guide students Mm. through that jungle of, that cultural jungle of literature. And I found that incredibly inspiring. As for my research, the big thing it led me to do was to conceive of a new research project for myself in which I would investigate the American and British writers in Rome at the end of the 19th century who had a huge influence in the acquisition of the building in which the poet John Keats died Mm -hmm. in Rome. They bought it and they turned it into a museum. And I'm one of the trustees of that museum today. So I have a lot of links with Rome, but I'd never realized before how important that alliance of American and British painters and writers was in bringing that about. I've become immensely excited by the idea of writing a book about that. Mm-hmm. So, and you can see
0: the evidence of their interactions in their own work? Is oh, that- you
1: absolutely can. For one thing, they're there because of Keats. And we're talking here about writers like Henry James, Edith Wharton, Oscar Wilde, In terms of visual artists, we're talking about Elihu Vedder, whose work is in most American art museums that you go into. These people are remarkable people. And yes, they were very, very aware of being part of a kind of cosmopolitan group of people, principally composed of American and British thinkers, writers, artists. And out of that ferment of activity, there comes this desire to make something permanent. Those
0: moments are so precious when you see multiple minds together in the same place at the same time. Well, you were talking about your students. Let's go back to you as a student. What's your memory on the discovery that poetry and British literature was something that had deep fascination to you? What's your first moment of a spark?
1: When I was at high school, I wanted to be an actor and I was a total failure at school I might say. I did very very badly for a a combination of reasons but the one thing I was any good at was literature and specifically poetry. That excited me and the idea of reading it out and even perhaps pursuing some sort of dramatic career became very important to me. As it happened I wouldn't do that. I wouldn't end up doing that i ended up getting into oxford university as an undergraduate and studying under jonathan wordsworth who was a romanticist and who nurtured my love of poetry and guided it towards some of the weirder wackier kind of poetry written by wordsworth When he was 28, Wordsworth went through a period of pantheism. He believed profoundly in the notion that there was one life force that went throughout the natural world. And he wrote poems that have still not been published, poetic fragments about that. That was amazingly exciting to me. And as my doctoral thesis, I edited a lot of Wordsworth's poems and really the business of editing is something that I've continued to do on and off since then but at the same time I have to confess uh, I've been incredibly I don't know how to put it other than say that I've been very promiscuous in terms of my interests. perhaps I can give you an idea of what I mean by saying that since July this year I have edited an anthology of poetry about dogs I have written an essay for the Royal Mail in London which will be published next year when they issue a series of stamps depicting romantic writers. I've written an essay for the Oxford Companion to Romantic Prose and it's about newspaper writing of the Romantic period and I've written an essay about a nineteenth-century Australian female poet, who's largely not read and not studied, but who I have discovered was very closely associated with the United Irishmen, which was a revolutionary group in Ireland in the eighteenth century. So that gives you an idea of the sort of. I suppose my attitude has often been: if it's interesting to me.
0: It will probably be interesting to other people. And you, so you must also reject a lot of ideas that are sort of interesting and they go nowhere. But is it, as you say, that you encounter something that you find intriguing and see an opportunity to explicate or expand or... Examine more deeply, and it probably is. That's incredible freedom that you have on that. That's wonderful.
1: Yes, well, of course, that's also how I approach teaching here. That you know, I read widely, and I come across an American poet who I hadn't heard of before, and the poetry is just very exciting. And I think I've got to take that into the class tomorrow. So I do. In a way, it seems to me that one's approach to this subject is determined in large part by the fact that it is open to an opportunistic Uh approach. Uh
0: Let's talk about that juggling of teaching and research and and service. You've already implied that you see ways, or you take advantage of ways of integrating your research and teaching, but say more about how do you conceptualize your own ability to juggle the various balls, the responsibilities of a modern faculty member?
1: I actually think they are in some ways quite different activities. I think that when we're talking about the humanities and particularly literature, the function of literature, it seems to me, is to help cultivate the student's ability to analyze and specifically their ability to analyze things for themselves to arrive at their own individual conclusions about specific issues or problems or situations. That's what the humanities help people to do. So everything I do in the classroom is geared towards cultivating those analytical faculties. And all of the writing and examination assignments I give them are to do with them displaying those abilities. I say that because all of that seems to me to be in the forefront of my mind when I'm teaching. But that said, it's clear that research can feed into teaching but I would never feed it in in a way that preserves its complexity and its strangeness and its use as a kind of area for me to come up with my own conclusions. And in a way, I'm happy about that. And I'm happy to, at the moment, uh, this term be teaching British and American 20th and 21st century poetry, which is an area I'm not really working on at all. I encourage the students, if they want to, to ask me about my work. But really, I like there to be this space in which they can explore for themselves it's really about that it's about them exploring
0: for themselves Mm -hmm. talk about it the other way do you have cases in the classroom things that happen or work that a student turns into you that sparks a new idea that ends up being a research project for you later on does that happen to you
1: Not really. I have to be honest. I don't think that does happen. But what I will do sometimes with students is talk to them about work they've done as a potential topic for a longer piece of work that they might do as a thesis or at the end of term. Mm -hmm. I don't think it would happen that a student would do a piece of work that would then feed into my own Mm -hmm. research.
0: Let me get a sense of how you work as a scholar. Some scholars like to do one project at a time and see it to completion and they might be thinking of the next one while they're doing that. They like these discrete tasks. Others like to have four or five things going on at once and uh, put it aside in a half complete. How do you do your work? I don't know how anyone could work
1: on five or six different things at the same time. I have to have just one thing to be doing. This time I've been teaching so there's been that and a research project but I couldn't do more than one at a time. Mm -hmm. It's just too much. It's almost too much with just one but with more than just one I just don't know how I'd do it. Mm -hmm. It would be impossible.
0: Do, Do you set aside certain hours of the day that are total scholarship side and you protect those? How do you live day by day on juggling these things?
1: I like talking to my students. So I come in most days of the week and I'm either returning work or talking to them about work that is yet to be done. I get up early, do some work before breakfast. When I get home, I try and do a couple of hours work and I've got weekends. And that's usually enough.
0: Fascinating. So maybe we should end up with a little insight in what you're doing right now. So what are the most exciting things that you're doing? What do you find yourself thinking of in odd moments that keep you going?
1: Right, well, I'm just at this minute writing an essay about the American playwright David Mamet for a literary magazine called Arte, which is published in Oxford. I'm reading and rereading a play called American Buffalo, I love Mamet because, as an American, I'm interested in understanding the sense in which his work is American. And American Buffalo is a very American play in a number of respects. It's it's certainly got things to say about, for instance, our attitude towards money that is, I think, distinctively American and quite different from a European attitude. So I'm fascinated by that. And that is really the main thing I'm thinking about right now.
0: Wonderful. Well, this has been delightful. I enjoyed every minute of our discussion and thank you for joining us. I appreciate it.
1: Thank you.